Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the gift of your grace, your patience, and your kindness with us that is renewed every morning. We pray that as we go through this next uh, section, as we study through the doctrines of grace, the objections, that you would be with us, open our minds and our hearts to what your word says, that we would not be blinded by systems, but that we would focus on what the text actually says. And Lord, I pray that um, these doctrines would not just be head knowledge for us, but that they would warm our hearts and display for us the particular love of Christ for His people, and it would draw us to Him even more. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we are continuing uh, through our brief discussion, train with no end, on Calvinism. Uh, we, we're on limited atonement. Last week we talked about the positive case for uh, limited atonement and, uh, and, and what did Christ intend to accomplish by His life, death, burial, and resurrection. Was it a wide bridge only going halfway across the chasm? And then, you know, you, He did the nine steps, you got to do the one. Or is it a narrow bridge for a specific people for a specific purpose that makes it all the way across the chasm. Uh, so we discussed that last time, and um, I, I want to review first our definitions of what we've gone over so far. Uh, it's it, well, tulip is kind of laid out in a, in, a, in an order, and it starts with total depravity or total inability, and that's mainly. Uh, that the very nature of man has been so affected by original sin that every part of his being is affected by evil. So there's no, there's no single part of man that has not been fatally infected by sin, is, is the idea. And that starts with, as it should, with the fallenness of man, condemned already, right? That's where we begin. Uh, and we went over the positive case for that. We talked about some objections for that. Next, uh, unconditional election. What do we mean by that? It's the, sovereign, it's the eternal, sovereign, unmerited, we don't deserve it, and immutable, it doesn't change, decree of God, whereby, according to the wise counsel of His own will and for His own glory, He has selected for Himself some individual sinners from among all mankind and of every nation to be redeemed and everlastingly saved by Christ. So there we begin with the first point of Calvinism, if we're going to boil it down to five points being the work of the Father in salvation. What does He do? The role of the Father in salvation, which He, he chooses a, a people, a, 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 an election out of fallen humanity that's totally depraved. He carves out of the clay a, a, a section of humanity to save, to intentionally save. All right, so irresistible grace. I know it's out of order, but uh, we're still working on limited atonement, so we're saving that to the end. Do you see my, my logic there? All right. Irresistible grace is the work of the Holy Spirit, or effectual calling. It's God's gracious work in which He, according to His eternal purpose and electing grace, powerfully subdues the sinner's rebellion, causing him to turn to Christ in genuine faith and earnest repentance. So we have the work of the role of the Father, unconditional election. We have the work of the Spirit, irresistible grace, the move in the heart to overcome the hardness that we have from total depravity, to put our faith and trust in Christ. So how does that, what is the means by which that has been, how can, how can God do that, right? How can He forgive uh, rebellion? 
rebellious sinners. He's sovereign. These uh, humans have, have violated the authority of the crown, and now they're in open rebellion against their creator. How could he just pass over that and cause them to love him again? How, what, what, by what means? Well, it's by the death and atonement purchased by, and that's the language of the New Testament, purchased, bought by Christ on the cross. And that's what we discussed last time. It, limited atonement is talking about the justification that God has to display His mercy and to display His judgment and His justice as King at the same time. And so when we come to the atonement, it's, it's a substitutionary... And everybody, everybody's orthodox agrees on this. It's a substitutionary exchange. In my place condemned he stood. Everybody agrees with that. But, but what was the intent there? How far does it go? Did he accomplish anything in his death, burial, and resurrection? So limited atonement says yes, he did. Um, we, another, another way to say his definite atonement is that the redemptive work of Christ was definite in design and accomplishment. It was not intended to make salvation possible for every man, but actually to accomplish salvation for the elect. And this is not new. This is not a new thing. This didn't start with Calvin. We would continue to go back through this refrain. First century, uh, uh, fourth century, Arrhenius said, All things he did for the younger Rachel, talking about Jacob, who had good eyes, as opposed to Leah's poor eyes. Y'all remember when we went through Genesis? Um, either, either she, Leah, did I say it again? I did. I'm, I default to Star Wars. <laughs> what is her name? Leah. Leah, okay, that is a, just, I, I keep thinking of the girl in the middle of the desert with a bun, you know, thing going on. All right, who prefigured the church for whom Christ endured, that is, sufferings and death. So, again, Arrhenius is looking at Christ endured sufferings and death for the church, not everybody, for the church. All right, so uh, Epiphanes, who was a, who was a, um, uh, a bishop in Cyprus uh, about uh, 390 AD, uh, for, uh, again, 4th century, about the same time as Augustine, actually, uh, said this, If you are redeemed, if therefore ye are bought with blood, thou art not the number of them who were bought with blood, O man, it's because thou deniest the blood. He gave his life for his own sheep. Again, a particular intent by the death of Christ, recognized by this bishop uh, in the fourth century. All right. Would you kiss your mother with that mouth? The phrase limited atonement. When we use that phrase, uh, many Christians... Okay, so we have three dogs. And two of our dogs are old dogs, uh, Katie and Copper. We've had them since they were puppies, and they've been in our place forever. We were blessed with another dog because he kept coming to our house anyway, so the neighbors just said, here, take the dog. They have a routine that they go through every time. So Shadow will run off and go chase everything because he's like the younger one. He's still kind of a puppy at heart. And he's, he's always off. And he, the old, two older dogs stay on the They'll bark with him, but they bark at a safe distance from the porch. But when he comes back, their hackles get raised. Every, they know who he is. He's lived with us for three years now. They still raise their hackles. They'll bark at him, and they do their initiation routine when he comes in to make sure that he you know, realizes who's boss, right? So he, they, every time, when you say limited atonement, hackles get raised. Why? It's because uh, we have a natural, I think, affection for the work 
of Christ. And to say in any way that it's deficient somehow or it's limited in some way just seems like that shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't. So a lot of Calvinists, will, 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 they don't like the limited because of the hackles, right? And so they'll, they'll use terms like definite atonement. Or another phrase that's used is particular redemption. And I actually like that one. Uh, particular Baptist, you know, the, in the history of the English church, the particular Baptist held to particular redemption. That's kind of where that stuff comes from is the natural offensive way in the English language limited just feels like it shouldn't be done that way. Either way, so there it is. So don't, you know, it, it's not a cuss word, I guess is what I'm trying to say with you kiss your mother with that mouth. All right, so here are the objections. It's something more, well, um, some, some talk, uh, th this is an important point. Some, some guys are real hard-nosed about the limitation. And they'll talk about Jesus dying only for the elect. Right? That, that's the language that they, only for the elect, only for the elect. Others will, will use the words of, of Timothy, I think, where he says, especially for the elect. Right? It's kind of, so there's something else that's general part of the atonement, but redemptively it's for his people. There's a particularness there. So either way, it's something more than just universal atonement, right? So most Reformed guys will, will, will certainly do one or the other, but it's always more than mere universal. All right, so objections. It ain't biblical. Several verses, really the objections are broken up into three ways. One's exegetical. The, the verses seem to say broad, world, many, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the other is theological, that ain't the God I know, right? He's love, 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 you know. Uh, and, and, the, and the third one is it, it kills missions. Those are usually the, the, the three. So you've got exegetical, theological, missional are the typical objections you see to this. So uh, let's look at the, the verses. I, I'm going to spend most of my time, I think, on the exegetical because I think it's the one that's most uh, difficult sometimes to, to deal with. Let's look at the verses dealing with perishing believers or, 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 or destroy, the destroy verses. Uh, many, um, world, all, all of those. We'll, we'll look at those verses and just kind of see what it says. So let's look at the destroy verses. And this is a, a popular objection based on Romans 14, 15. And again, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 11. So Romans 14, 15 says this. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat... You are no longer walking in love. Well, let that sink in. That's a whole other topic there. They're grieved by what you're eating, and you're no longer walking in love if you continue to eat it. So there's, a, there's an issue. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 11. Again, talking about food. Apparently this is a food thing. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So the objection goes like this. Limited atonement says that all for whom Christ died must necessarily be saved. If they are saved, they can never perish or be destroyed, right? But these verses say that some for whom Christ died do in fact perish. Therefore... Not all for whom Christ died will ultimately be saved, and hence it follows that he died for all. I find this to be an incredibly weak objection, and so I wanted to deal with it first just to kind of get it out of the way. Because it says that those for whom Christ died will perish, or can perish, or possibly perish, he didn't accomplish 
salvation to the end for them is the objection. Really? That's a, that's a context argument, isn't it? If we were just going to pour our bias into a verse and rip it out of context, I guess we could get, a, get, get at that. It boils down to what do you mean by destroy? Right? What do you mean by perish? Both texts state that this person is a brother for whom Christ died. So a Christian brother is the idea. And, and Scripture almost always uses this term, brother, to mean a Christian brother. So if so, part of interpreting Scripture is using Scripture to interpret Scripture. The rule of faith, we call it. We have to go. So we know that other passages say, Christ, it's in red so it's really inspired, Christ says that brothers, Christians, those for whom he dies and saves, are not, uh, are not lost. He keeps them, right? He says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So that's a pretty clear statement on what he's saving. And the word that is used there for perish in the Greek is the same word that's used in these other two verses in Romans and Corinthians. It's the same word. They're not going to perish. And yet, it says, don't cause to perish. I mean, so what kind of perish are we talking about here? Yeah? I, I was just looking, and um, later down in, that, in Romans 14, 20, it says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. <clears throat> right. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. We know that from the rest of Scripture that we're not going to destroy something God has right. ordained. Right. But it does, I think what it points to is a responsibility to be sensitive to each other and to not cause unnecessary stumbling blocks or unnecessary arguments with people that, that lead to disunity, yeah. which is destructive. Right. It, it doesn't mean it's going to destroy them to hell, it, but it is destructive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can take it. I think you look at I think you're exactly right. I think, I think you look at those verses in the context. Jesus is talking about <laughs> salvation to the end, right? He's talking about I'm keeping them kept. I'm the good shepherd. I'm keeping them kept. Paul is talking about Romans and in Corinthians, how brothers relate among each other. And the destruction there he's talking about is probably unity. But another aspect of that is conscience. We never want to, if someone has a conscious objection to drinking craft beer with a cigar, don't blow smoke in their face about it. Thank you. I'm on again at eight. If that's, if that's an issue, don't use your liberty to violate your brother's conscience to where he's hardening his heart toward Christian unity. Show love. Let your liberty pull back a little bit and love your brother for the sake of conscience. Don't destroy his conscience. Um, another aspect some have, some have argued is that this is dealing with don't do things that are crazy that might cause them to actually physically die. So that's another, another uh, interpretation of this. But I don't, I don't think, and I think, I think most Calvinist theologians would agree, is that this doesn't talk about eternal destruction in, in, in Romans and 1 Corinthians. It's talking about uh, on the ground, time and space, how are we dealing with conscience, not, um, 
not uh, not that. And to that extent, it's 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 not even addressing the question of unbelievers. They're not being talked about in these two verses. What it's it's an irrelevant uh, passage to the extent of the atonement. One of the things that's interesting, though, some of the smart guys, when they're looking at these two verses especially, they see, even though it's not explicitly taught, they see a hint of limited atonement within the verses themselves. Um, Paul says that Christian brothers are valuable because Christ died for them. Don't cause their consciences to be seared. Don't put them in jeopardy of being perished because they're special to Jesus. Now, that argument gets gutted if you say he died the same for everybody, right? So I think in a way you can kind of, you see the, the underlying purpose, the point is Christ died for them, for them. All right, look at 2 Peter 2.1. This is a similar situation. It's kind of the, the other side of that coin. Um, we see this uh, verse worked out a lot on TBN. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So the objection goes something like this. 2 Peter 2.1 says that these heretics denied the Lord who bought them, the master who bought them. They're reprobates. If Christ bought reprobates, then it is clear that he died for all and not only for the elect. Again, that's just a real quick reading. Let's do it. Let's not really investigate what the language is about. So let's look at the language as in responding to this objection. Who bought them? What's the title that Paul uses here? What's the title? Master. Master. Uh, the, 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 the Greek here, absolute ruler. Lord, right? In what sense has he bought them? Has he bought them... For salvation? Or has he bought them in the sense that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me by my Father through my obedience? I think that's where he's going on this. The lordship issue is at stake here. Even these guys who are speaking blasphemies about the name of Christ are under the lordship, the authority of Jesus because of his obedience and resurrection. Um, it, it, you're saying it seems like he, he bought them for judgment. I mean, he, he, he bought the price. So the idea is, is, is kind of a, a Pharaoh issue, right? Uh, I, for this purpose, I raised you up that those who teach heresies be destroyed and be evident to the church. You know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, maybe. Maybe there's that. I think there's kind of that feel. But it's certainly, I think this points more to a lordship judgment issue. I mean, that's the context of the verse. Master there, I think, again, points to what he's dealing with is the kingship of Jesus, not talking about the extent of the atonement. That's not what the, that's not what the passage is about. It's talking about the kingship of Christ. Um, the, the, the bot does not refer to the atonement applied, but to lordship. Um, Christ did in some way buy reprobates and heretics. There is a general atonement in the sense that he's bought the whole world. Uh, you remember the parable that Christ talks about the man who buys a field, the whole field, for the treasure in it? He's got authority over the field, but the part he loves, the part he's after, is the treasure, right? 
That's kind of the sense you get here from Peter. He bought the world. He's after the treasure. So that's, that's a quick response to that. Any comments on that? Any questions on that one? Yeah. So in multiple verses, there's a talking of falling away, warning against falling away in Revelation throughout. People who fall away from the faith. Be on guard. You know, right. Watch yourself right. falling away. And you can't fall away from something that you were never... True. I mean, the, the nature of falling away would mean that you were there and then you And then you fell, fell back, right. So I, I'm not sure how to, how to put those verses in, in context when it says, in later times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Mm -hmm. It goes on. There's so many verses mm -hmm. of falling away. Right. Hebrews uh, goes through that. Hebrews 3, 6, 10. Uh, all deal with this, uh, you know, those who have tasted the goodness of God, the goodness of the Spirit, and then walk away. There's no hope for repentance for them. Those kinds of things are some, those are, those are the things that, that, that uh, have kept me at night with a nosebleed, you know. Um, I, uh, we, we hear that, that warning. But what does the warning do? For the believer, what does the warning do? Watch yourself, right? I need to be at the foot of the cross. I don't want to fall away like these reprobates and heretics blow through it, you know, like what Peter's talking about. I don't, the warning passages to me cause me to repent. They're, they're, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a holy God, right? Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And those kinds of warnings, look, you, you can be this... You know, I, I was born in church. My umbilical cord was cut in the nursery. I got, I got dunked when I was four. I got dunked again when I was eight. I, you know, you can do that and have this hardness that I've done the confession, I've done the thing, I'm just blowing on. And yet, if there's no, holy, if there's no evidence of that, a warning passage for those who are in Christ... Or, or those who are being called, or, or maybe not being Christ, but elect, and, and, and his, his grace is going to have its effect, the warning passages will act as a, a prick of the conscience to look toward the cross and not toward my, my experience. Why the following away, falling away instead of false conversion? I yeah. It does, it does. It, which, which it, it is something you very much Yeah. With. Yeah. Because when we first got married, I mean, I grew up Southern Baptist. Kevin grew up whatever. And and he absolutely believed that at any moment you could be out of the faith and lose your right, and, and lose your salvation. The, the it was a touchy situation day to day. The way I kind of view it is there's a difference in your position and your condition. Your position is whose you are. Who who is your master? Your condition is your relationship. Your relationship is, it can be emotional, it may be up, it may be down, you may have mountaintops and valleys. So think of it like, I'm an analogy guy. So think of it like we're all dogs playing in the same yard. It's one big yard. But you, just bear with me. <laughs> so you've got, you've got a good master that's on one side, and you've got a bad master that's on the other side. Both of the dogs, they go and they play kind of in the same yard. Sometimes one of the, the bad master dogs looks like he's playing in the same thing as one of the good master dogs, but then where do those dogs go at night? Who, who's master to whom do they belong? They always return to their master. They always go home. Sometimes it looks like they're playing around and uh, they, 
you know, they're playing in the same field and digging in the same holes and that kind of thing, but that's your condition, your relationship. Your position does not change. Unless you're converted like Shadow was and came into our house. Or, <laughs> All dogs go to heaven, so <laughs> not Calvinism in the dog world. The falling away is watch yourself on your relationship. Watch yourself on your condition that you stay firm in the faith, that you're loving God, that you're right. worshiping Him, right. that you're practicing the... Why wouldn't it use some... Because in our because in our view, and I, and I think getting to the language, in our view, when I mean first century, it's not talking about salvation. In first, well, in a way, it is. In first, in first century, uh, John is looking at churches where guys have come in and seem to have all the cred, right? They're all these awesome teachers and all this kind of stuff, and then they go off on their own with a cult following, a Gnostic. They get into a Gnostic thing and they take people with them. And the church is left devastated. This was a salt. This was one of the deacons that left to follow this guy. What does that mean? Can I? Are we saved or not? You know. So pastorally, he's looking at it, saying it appears to you that they're fallen away because they said all the right things, but they went out from us because they were not of us. Right? And that what he says in 1 John? So the, the, the language he's using is experiential language, falling away. But he's telling them from, from God's view, they were never part of you. They were tares, they weren't wheat. So when Jesus speaks to the churches in Revelation, he says, you know, take care lest you... I mean, he's saying, you were, I'm going to remove your language. Yeah, okay. yeah. But that, that, I don't... What he's talking about there, and Philip went through this when he went through Revelation... I don't think he's talking about there about their salvation. What he's talking about there is their is their their position, their influence, their their. Um, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's the Laodicea, yeah. But 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 that's the church, in general. So, so of God does, sorry. Go ahead. God does not promise Sylvania Church will make it to the end. Right. He promises certain group of people who are saved on the inside. So if God says I'm going to remove Sylvania churches church from its lampstand, Sylvania Church, the, maybe the members here who are truly saved, maybe they go to another church, maybe they die and then new people don't come in. That's There's a difference between the individual people unto salvation versus a group of people with a, uh, a you know, like birds of a feather flock together with the same the, mindset and mission. The witness of the church in Laodicea exactly. could die. In the Laodicea. witness the, in Laodicea, in, the witness of the church in Ephesus could be pulled back. The witness, you know, so he's talking in terms of, and it and it did in Laodicea. I mean, look at look at it now. Um, so the the the. The, in terms of the, the influence of, of that body of believers or that section of the body of Christ ebbing and flowing in their influence and in their, in their moving forward in the gospel, that, that's what I think those uh, chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation are talking about, about the lampstand, those kinds of things. Again and again he says, once I've got you, I've got you. And he's talking about individual sheep. He's not talking corporately, he's talking individual sheep. And so, um, you know, again, it's what is it talking, what, what's the context in which it's talking about and, and where is it going? Is it, is it, is it, is, 
is it talking about salvation or is it talking about uh, a witness present in the in the area and those and those verses in specific, uh, particular is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. I think it's interesting because when um, you talk about separating out, it's um, it's what goats and sheep, it's pruning of branches, mm-hmm. things like that. When when he's talking about um, those who have come who know him by name, I mean we are called sheep, but over and over again we're called children mm-hmm. and there's nowhere where he says I will disown my children yeah or I will cast out my children you don't get unadopted it, it's 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 a permanent adoption mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that's that's where the you know all that the father gives me I hold and mm-hmm. no one can snatch them out of my hand and no one can snatch them right. out of the father's right. hand they're mine um but it but, gives you pause. I, I, yeah, and I think I think from a from our standpoint, we've all known people right. who, for years, walked the Christian walk and, and lived a Christian life, and then and, lost their and, minds. And were and were leaders of churches mm-hmm. or you know, that sort of thing, and then completely turned their back on everything. Mm-hmm. Now, if they're still breathing, there's still hope. Right. We don't know what God's doing in their heart, but from our standpoint. They have definitely fallen away. Right, right, and this and this gets to, this gets again to the, the this is a very um, particular discussion uh, with uh, perseverance of the saints, especially. Do, are we kept? Are we going? The question is, uh, do we keep ourselves? Do we keep ourselves, or is God? And the answer is kind of yes and yes, because there's a God isn't you know He's at work. We work because He's working in us. You know, Philippians says. Um, and yet, we're, we're supposed to work. We're supposed to tend to our own hearts. We're supposed to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. We're supposed to do these things that Paul talks about, the imperatives in, in chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, of what a Christian looks like. And this is how we display that we're in him. And yet, that's not what saves us. Um, so that's a, so that's a, 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 we'll talk about that more, more intentionally when we get to, um, when we get to perseverance. Yeah. Would you say it's kind of an external versus internal thing? Right. People can look like Christian. Yeah. But Jesus will reveal who's actually Christian. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I mean, he talks about that. He'll separate. He'll separate to the left and to the right. So okay. So because of time, we're looking at world versus uh, all the all verses. And the many verses. And I want to go through this real quickly. I know it's ten, it's ten already. And we may, we may just punt to next week and finish it up. Um, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's, let's finish it up next week. I think, um, I, I guess one of the ways to approach these, um, one of the ways to approach these uh, is, uh, well, when, when someone objects based on, he's, and they always do it with the flourish, you know. Who's, uh, uh, for God so loved the world, and they do, you know, the thing, the flourish. And it's, that, makes, that, that makes the point. Oh, well, it's the world, you know. Well, and, and there, there, are seven, there are seven verses that teach that Christ died for the world, and I've got them listed there for you. But when they say it with that dramatic flourish that settles the point, I just want to roll my eyes and go, okay, wh- what does that mean? What is the world? Um... 
for example, God, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. I, I agree. Amen. Hallelujah. He did. Yay. How does that advance your argument? Whoever believes, why would they believe? Why does one believe and not the other? How does that help your argument? Um, uh, that, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world, the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Yes, He was reconciling the world to Himself. How is He doing that? What is it? What by what means is he doing that? How does that advance your argument? First um, John two two gives me pause. He is the propitiation for our sins, satisfies the wrath for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of not just the world, but the whole world. And what do you do with that? Because you can really the whole you can really get into that. That really makes the point. So one, one way to address this, uh, I think with this and with the many and with the all, you kind of get into the same kind of argument, is that yes, he did die for all men. I can say that as a five, well, a seven-point Calvinist. I can say that as a five-point Calvinist. But this doesn't deny that he died in a special way for the elect. Just saying he died for the world doesn't talk about how, how that's applied. What does that mean? It's just a general statement. Uh, the, the general atonement position that some Calvinists take merely means that Christ paid an infinite price and all may partake of it if they will, but that's the issue. They won't. But for the grace of God... They won't. And again, I think it pushes it back even to that master language that we saw earlier. He's Lord of all. How, and, and, it's, and it's on Him. He gives life as Lord of all. He gives life to whom He will. Yeah. So is it more a sufficiency statement than an effectiveness? I think so. That, uh, that's, when I see those kinds of statements, they're not really dealing with the atonement as applied, they're dealing with the worth of Christ's sacrifice. It's sufficient, for it was sufficient for all, and that's the language of Dort. I mean, that's that's the language that, and, you, and I put that in your notes. That's the language that the the, count, the, the Synod of Dort used as well. Is that the, his his death was of infinite value, but he applies it how he wills as Master who bought them. Right. Um, the provision is infinite and universal. But the intent and application are particular. So that's, that's one way to deal with it. And that's kind of the way I favor. I think Calvin goes there and, and others do too. Another way is to uh, really focus in on the use of the word world. Uh, cosmos in the Greek can mean an entire, the entire created universe. Acts 17, 24, we see that used that way. It can mean earth in uh, Ephesians 1, 4 even before the foundation of the world, even before the foundation of the world, right? 
it, it, meaning the earth. Um, it can mean mankind in general, or it can mean unbelievers contrasted with believers. You see that in John 15, 8, 18, and, and much of John 17. Or it can mean Gentiles as opposed to Jews. Remember, he's talking to John, especially a lot of this is coming in. John and, and Paul are talking to Jews who think we're the special people only, and yet the gospel is now going to Gentiles. And so they're pushing this notion of, he, he didn't just die for Jews. He died for the world, right? So all kinds of people is the idea there. Uh, so, so the smart guys uh, have come up with, you know, a couple of, uh, three ways to do this. World means Gentile believers. Others say world means uh, the world of the elect. And still others say mankind at large, but not applied or inclusive of everyone and all kinds of men. So when we look at John, 1 John uh, 2, 2, what does John mean by whole world? I don't think he means Gentile believers only there. Because in John, uh, 1 John 5.19, he's talking about, um, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, if whole world meant Gentile believers, it meant that Gentile believers you know, rely on them. So he's talking about the, the world system, the world in general. You can't say he means the whole world in one way in chapter 2 and another way in chapter 5. Uh, he means unbelievers in both verses. So I think a fair reading here is that John is talking about the sufficiency again of the atonement. He's enough for everybody. He's enough. He's not speaking to whom it is applied, but there's provision for everybody. How is it applied? In the all verses, I think, and I've listed the all verses for you, it's the same the same thing. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. How are, I think an approach to take to these, these kinds of verses is, is, is very... Uh, how would a non-Calvinist approach this? He's died for all, all have died? Does that mean everybody is saved? Is that, is that, nobody would say that. No, nobody orthodox would say that. I mean, bye-bye Rod Bell. Um, so... Nobody orthodox would say that. So either you're going to limit it by my awesomely awesome faith needs to be enacted to receive the merit of, of grace that Christ has done in heaven, or you're going to say uh, he did something. He accomplished what he meant to do, which is what we argued last week. Uh, he, you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Um, Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Again, what are we trying to accomplish with that? What is Paul saying there? Who's the all? Well, who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. Do, are you going to argue, oh, non-Calvinist objector, that, uh, that the all is everybody, every man, woman, and child from the beginning of time forward? Did he, did he purchase those who are now in hell? Did, did he fail? Lord knows he tried, right? Uh, that's Shia of Lynn, document uh, uh, treatise on that. And it's a three-minute uh, treatise on, on this. Lord knows he tried. Some, some Calvinists take the approach that these verses are talking about the worth of Christ's death, the sufficiency of his atonement, not the application of it. And I, and I, I agree with that. Um, Others say all does not mean all without exception or all without distinction. 
Uh, but, but it means all without distinction. And other places we see all being used, again, that Jew-Gentile distinction, or sometimes all a large number. All went out to be baptized by John the Baptist. Well, no, they didn't. Not all of them did. The Pharisees in Luke 7 didn't, right? So there's a general way in which that's used to make a point, a hyperbo hyperbolic point of hyperbole, a hyperbolic point of a lot of people went out. So there's different ways that, that all is used. Um, and it's the same way with the many. Um, you, you see uh, in Romans 5, 18 through 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So there's that relationship, that one-to-one -one relationship. But we're not arguing, and Paul isn't arguing, that it leads to, to life for every single man, woman, and child who ever lived. There's an understanding of all kinds or, or, or um, uh, without distinction kind of, kind of argument. And Calvin uh, believed this as well. He says, Paul makes grace common to all men, not because it in fact extends to all, but because it is offered to all. Although Christ suffered for the sins of the world and is offered by the goodness of God without distinction to all men, yet not all receive him. So clearly... Uh, everybody limits the atonement in some way. We just believe that Jesus actually accomplished something. Um, so again, I, I think that, that these speak to the provision of Christ's atonement, not its application. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's 1015. All right. I've got some, some, some other... Uh, we've talked about some of this before. The objection that God's love is infinite. Its expression cannot possibly be limited. It would be unconscionable for God to send Christ to pay for the sins of only some people. <clears throat> you know, it, it's elevating one attribute of God, love, to sweep everything. Uh, nowhere uh, in, in Scripture do the angels proclaim before the throne, uh, God is uh, love, love, love. They say, holy, holy, holy. And... and Pushing one attribute like love to everything robs or doesn't take into account the fact that he does love in a way that maintains his holiness and his distinctiveness among um, everything else. We addressed this somewhat in our discussion last week. Was Jesus trying to make the whole world his bride? What does that do to the analogy that Paul uses when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Is that love? by saying he loves everybody the same. Well, no, it diminishes his intentional love by saying that. Um, all right. And then it kills evangelism. We're going to have a special, in our never-ending series on Calvinism, we have a special discussion on the history of evangelism uh, in, in the, of modern evangelism and also on uh, how would you witness to somebody uh, as a Calvinist, can you say, is it fair to say, Jesus died for you? Is that a true statement from a Calvinist perspective? Um, my short answer to this, again, goes back to the Lordship thing. Uh, yes, He did die for you, <laughs> either to judgment or to mercy. <laughs> He's Lord. Uh, and I go back to the Lordship thing again and say, it's not an invitation, it's a command. Um, Paul talks about that in Acts 17. He, he is king of heaven and earth. It's not, you know, come down the aisle, please, 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 cheerful Jesus, whatever. It's, I'm king of heaven and earth. 
all men everywhere are now commanded to repent and believe the gospel. So it's not a it's not a a, a weepy invitation. It's the it's the herald from the king. That's my view on that. All right. Practically, real quickly, real quickly, five minutes. How? What is this? What's the effect of this? Why does it matter? One, the doctrine of limited atonement will affect preaching and teaching. We proclaim the work of Christ as a victorious accomplishment. It's not a possibility of salvation, but Christ has accomplished salvation itself. Number two, it will affect our assurance that we are His and will remain so. If Christ had intended to save some who have already perished in their sins, we're hosed. We're not, we can't rely on Christ alone for salvation. We have to rely on Christ and our faith. Uh, we, we could also perish. But if He has effectively redeemed all whom He intended to redeem, then we're forever secure. That's a, it's a, it's a basis for assurance. Number three, it will affect our view of justification before God. If, if God died uh, equally for all men, we can't say that our justification, again, is based on Christ alone. Consistent Arminians have said this, and they've translated some of their, their uh, uh, Bibles this way, uh, Christ's blood and our faith, <laughs> because of being consistent. It's, a, it's not a Christ alone uh, doctrine uh, from them. All right, we believe that Christ did it all by himself, even the purchase of the willingness to believe. And finally, it will affect our worship. Christ is the victorious redeemer of sinners, and he will be the focus of our worship, not the sinner's decision, which is another issue we'll talk about at another time. So there, I blew through the last bit of limited atonement to get it done, but we'll talk next week, I think, on one that has been a constant theme we've kept coming back to, perseverance of the saints. How do we know we're kept? So we'll do that next time. Uh, and yes, we need to let go. So I'm going to pray. <clears throat> Father, this is a big topic. And uh, we had a little bit of time. So I pray that uh, one thing that you would do by your spirit is to stir up our hearts to study these things to see if they're so. That you would force our minds into right reasoning from the scripture um, regarding the intention of Christ the cross. We pray that it affects uh, not only uh, how we think about salvation, but also affects our hearts and our worship. As we go into the next service, make much of Jesus, we pray, through the sermon, through the songs, and draw our hearts to him once again. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for being here.